Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the honor of speaking with journalist and author Doug Birand. His new book, In Search of Mycotopia, dives into the neglected megascience of mycology and introduces readers to the weird and wonderful communities of citizen scientists and microbe devotees who are leading the modern mycological movement. Doug uncovers a diverse cadre of growers, independent researchers, ecologists, entrepreneurs, and amateur enthusiasts exploring and advocating for fungi's capacity to improve and heal contaminated landscapes, provide food and medicine, and demonstrate how humans might live better with nature and one another. The book is told through Doug's firsthand encounters from the perspective of an embedded reporter drawn to this wonderfully enticing mycoculture. This is an exploration of the wild new frontiers of all things mushroom, an inspiring look at the people who are paying attention to what fungi can teach us about the potential for our future. I'm excited to learn how mycotopia is already all around us, and all we have to do is embrace it. Doug, thank you so much for coming on Mushroom Hour. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I joked with my wife in preparing, reading the book and preparing for this interview, that it is the perfect companion book to anyone who's interested in the Mushroom Hour podcast. You will absolutely love In Search of Mycotopia because some of the characters are the same. You get introduced to a lot of new characters and it just covers kind of the whole range of mycology. So I'll just get that out of the way first. I absolutely love the book. Oh, thanks so much. I'm happy to hear that. And yeah, it's it's, it's such a huge world that the more I've explored, it seems to just feel smaller and smaller. But maybe that's the, the dynamic with any community, especially a tight-knit one, like the mycological community. It ends up feeling like a... Definitely a very tight-knit community. And before we dive into the book, which, again, covers so much information, I'm really curious to learn more about your background, uh, because in reading a little bit on your social media, you know, I know now that you're into cats, guitars, and mushrooms, Uh, (laughs) but I want to know a little bit about that background, maybe how you came to journalism, and eventually how you came to the world of mushrooms. I feel like guitars, cats, and mushrooms kind of sums it up, but I could go deeper. (laughs) I... I, uh... I came to journalism through a kind of circuitous path. I actually spent about seven years, maybe more, as a a guitar teacher and a musician prior to finishing college and getting a degree in journalism and uh, then taking up writing jobs. But I had been writing in high school and junior high. I was in a journalism class and it kind of took me years to recognize that I had a, a knack for it and an interest in it. And... I mean, even today, it's hard for me to kind of say that I'm a journalist or a writer because I still see it as just something that I'm doing at the moment, you know, but I've been doing it for a long moment at this point. And (laughs) the interest in fungi and mushrooms took part in a shift in my interest as a writer because I used to cover technology and media uh, predominantly. And I was looking, I think, for some sense of hope in those subjects, uh, some sign of a way forward through these myriad problems with our environment and our social arrangements that technology offered a lot of or promised a lot of uh, solutions to. But ultimately, I think the proof's in the pudding. It hasn't, you know, we haven't invented our way out of the problems we've invented ourselves into. And just through happenstance, while I was sort of wrestling with that, I had opportunities emerge to write about food 
And I had heard about mushrooms. I had actually watched a, the Paul Stanitz TED Talk that everyone's seen, <laughs> Six Ways Mushrooms Can Save the World. And it just sort of set my mind racing. And actually, the first time I wrote about fungi was for a tech website, which is kind of funny. Yeah, that just started off a process of becoming more conscious of food and land stewardship and ecosystems. And my roommate at the time took the the signal of mushrooms and just ran, like really went deep with it. And so I was kind of caught in the wake of that for a while. I was writing about it here and there. And yeah, the opportunity came to the story of how the book actually came about is a little bit funny because I I wasn't planning on writing the book until the publisher approached me and suggested that it might be worth proposing a book on this subject I'd been writing a little bit about. So I agreed <laughs> that it was definitely, yeah. definitely a great subject. And it wasn't until that opportunity arose that I started actually thinking about how to organize it and approach it and put it into a book. And that's been the last uh, two years of my life, basically. <laughs> That same talk by Paul Stamets, I think is what got me into mushrooms, got so many people into mushrooms. So you kind of went through some of the usual avenues where people get obsessed with mushrooms and then just happen to be a journalist, even if you don't see yourself as that, just happen to be a journalist that could faithfully represent this community. I think that really comes through in the writing and how you portray people and how you portray the movement. I think it's really genuine and it feels like you're someone who's kind of in the culture. And I love what you said too about being inspired about trying to get ourselves out of some of the problems we've invented for ourselves. And I was just reminded of a quote uh, yesterday, actually, from, I believe it was Einstein who said, the solutions to problems aren't going to come from the same level at which the problems were created. Maybe tapping mm -hmm. into fungal consciousness, we all kind of feel like is putting us on some new wavelength or new vibration that's going to help us figure out creative solutions. I think a lot of us feel that way and inspires a lot of a lot of hope. So uh, interesting to, to hear you felt the same. I think, yeah, there's something to this notion of trying to tap into the genius of nature. And it's kind of a, a theme, even if it's not like said that way or quite so explicitly, it's something I feel is consistent throughout the, I mean, beyond the mycological movement, frankly, but it's, there's something about an organism that resembles a brain that lives reciprocally that has lasted as long as fungi have that you know suggest uh, there are different ways to approach our relationship to the world than the ones we've been trying you know the word awakening is overused but so many people whether they see a movie like kiss the ground or fantastic fungi we kind of start getting this bigger ecological picture and inevitably although kiss the ground conspicuously leaves out fungi in a lot of ways yeah. um inevitably we start seeing fungi as like this organism that's key. And, you know, that's not really a surprise because they've been intimately involved in really Earth's history and especially humanity's history. Yeah, I guess, what did you learn about how integral that relationship really was? Hmm. I mean, yeah, where to begin and, and how to even end, you know, with a, a great prompt like that. I mean, I think the first thing one starts recognizing when when they begin looking into fungi is just how co-constructed they are with their environments and inseparable they are from their substrate. I had an analogy come to mind recently, like if you're looking at fungi without thinking about what they're growing in or among, it's sort of like looking at a map of uh, cell phone towers without the map of the landscape underneath it. Like you can see the connections, but you don't have any sense for the context or what they're connecting. Mm. And to look at fungi in a vacuum is sort of impossible. It doesn't make sense really to consider them without also considering everything to which they're connected. And it turns out that is basically everything 
that's alive and a lot of what's not. I think of them as like facilitators. They've got this role in nature as much as they are like discrete organisms or a kingdom or queendom of organisms. They are a process as well that's playing out in front of you. And mushrooms are just a sign of that process, you know. That perspective started to kind of sink in for me. And the more I talk to mushroom people, the more it, it sank in. And one of the first stories in the book is my trip upstate to go foraging with Olga Sogas of Smugtown Mushrooms, upstate New York, that is. And the feeling of suddenly being aware of how many mushrooms there were around me uh, in an environment that I thought I was pretty familiar with. Um, I've been in New York for a while. But the the forest started to kind of light up in a way that I had never experienced before. And I think it was the beginning of a, a path, you know, or the continuation of that path that started with the Stamets video to recognize them everywhere. And then once that interest took hold to start seeing like, well, if I actually want to learn about fungi, if I want to learn about this mushroom, I have to learn about this tree to which it connects or the state of the soil, you know, the ecology in general and the weather and, and all of this. It just inherently and, and from every angle, there's like there's no way to really assess it without assessing the bigger picture, which to me is quite profound. And I think that's one of the amazing things about mycology, about fungi, is it encourages people to become more interested in just biology in general because you have to. It becomes this amazing talisman for people to tap into understanding ecology in a deeper way, understanding science in a deeper way, in a way that's authentic because we get so interested in mushrooms, whether it's for their kind of utopian potential and healing environments or just through the belly, you know, the fact that they make delicious food, we kind of naturally get really interested. And that's, you know, the best way to learn about anything else is when you already have such a passion around this organism, you just find yourself reading books about all different kinds of biology and chemistry and things you never thought you were going to be interested in, kind of hinting too at how mushrooms, for me, feel like this hidden piece of the puzzle that our society just hasn't caught up with yet. So when you finally find that, it starts explaining things so much better. You start seeing relationships so much better. It even starts filling in gaps with how we think and how we see the natural world. So yeah, it's an incredibly profound touchstone just for all of biology. Now, I'm curious, because you bring it up a couple times in the book, what do you think about space spores? Do you think <laughs> mushrooms started life on Earth? Oh, I want to believe. I I would love to find out that that's true, but I've I've been pretty convinced that it's a theory at best. There's a book I would recommend on this subject called Fungal Biology in the Origin and Emergence of Life by David Moore, where he, he starts at like the formation of matter in the universe and works his way up to organic molecules at the beginning of life. And it's a really profound um, trip he takes you on. And he convinced me that it's more likely that fungi are as earthly as us. And to me, that's honestly a more powerful reality to grapple with. I find that really, at, at a certain point, I started to see fungi as like somehow between animal and plant, which genetically, in a sense, they are. It's, it's a really simplistic way of putting it. But when you look at a mushroom, it's sort of fleshy. It's sort of plant-like. It, it makes me feel more connected to these other beings than to think that it came from an asteroid or something. So... I yeah. prefer to think that it's as earthly as me. I like that. Prefer to think of it as part of Earth's story and more relational to us and not as much of an alien. Well, I think that's one that always captures people's imagination, the space spores. So I just love the fact that you had the book 
ready to go. So we can all dig into that one. Well, the basic conceit of his argument, just to add to that, is um, that it's, it's a problem that comes up in other theories, too. You have to push back the question, ultimately, where did the spores come from originally, if they came right. from space. So it's the same question anyway. Yeah, that's true. Where would these have been birthed from, if not Earth? Yeah. I think it is part of the Earth's DNA, if you will. Fungi are an important piece and unique to this planet. But like you said, I'll be happy to be proven wrong and meet the alien fungi and figure out the planet where they come from. When I was at the uh, Telluride Mushroom Festival, there was a sign there that uh, people take this theory to heart, you know, and, and yeah. I was actually corrected. It's not a theory. Someone said it's like a proposition or they wanted to, you know, raise it, its stock a bit. And I sure. respect that. But there was a sign that I loved that that said uh, it had NASA, you know, the, the acronym for NASA, but they'd replaced it with never a straight answer. And they had a UFO, a picture of UFO dropping spores on Earth. And some people would disagree with me and I must respect that. We must respect that. It's good to look at all sides of these. Obviously, Telluride Mushroom Festival, the biggest mushroom festival in the country, kind of a heart, a beating heart of a lot of the mycological community, drawing in all kinds. You know, the book also touches on the academic community. And you got to spend time with academic mycologists and go to amazing places like the botanical gardens at Kew Gardens. Uh, you got to go to the University of Utah with incredible Bryn Dentinger there. So what were you left with in terms of impressions on where we are in exploring mycology? Now, I don't think people are looking at questions of you know whether they're aliens or not necessarily, but as science, academic science grapples with mycology, what were your impressions of kind of where we are in that process? Hmm. Mycology as a science is still so new, even among a relatively new canon of, of natural sciences that really sort of got formalized in the you know, last 250 years, the, the Victorian kind of revolution of, of scientific inquiry. I don't know if revolution is the right word to use there, but even in the midst of learning how to classify plants and animals and, and all manner of other beings, like fungi were, were in the mix, but were never distinguished until I think 1969, I believe, is when they were given their recognition of fungi as this completely discrete kingdom of organisms that on par with animals and plants, both in terms of their size and, and you know spread around the planet, and at least as important in terms of their ecological roles, fundamentally important beings are still new to us including the scientific community and in the us there, even though I'm not really part of it, uh, they seem to me to be faced with a challenge because as Dentinger put it to me, you know, they are having their own kind of Victorian revolution in mycology. They're catching up to where these other sciences are. And that's in terms of documenting biodiversity, like what fungi are out there and where, just woefully understudied, especially compared to other organisms kind of makes sense because you know plants animals they're easier to track they don't hide <laughs> the same way there, there are many fungi that can only be found because of advanced genetic sequencing techniques that can pull all the life threads out of a sample you know of dung or something and wouldn't have known there was fungus in there if, if not for these these sophisticated techniques and so there are these kind of slopes that the the science has to climb but it seems to me that the mountain of the problem really is just science funding in general is scarce these days. And mycology, as we've already said, is marginal among the sciences. And so right. it's not likely to get much in the way of funding. 
what scant funding there is. And so that's why the scientific community is leaning so much on the amateur and non-professional communities to shore up its research and to send people into the field and gather samples. And they're finding ways of adapting, which I feel like there's a metaphor in there somehow, but... Oh, the metaphors are inescapable when it comes to how we're mimicking mycelium and fungi. And and you have many beautiful examples, actually, of that in the book of this kind of overlap of the amateur naturalist with the academic community that I think intuitively feels very unique to mycology. But more and more, I started to think it is just because it's such a new science. And that's what's so interesting when you brought up examples in the book of kind of Victorian era naturalist groups and science clubs. You know, back then, there were dedicated amateurs for plants and animals as well that were making huge contributions because some of the codification of those sciences was relatively new. I can't decide basically if mycology, because we're mimicking the mycelium that enlisting everyone, amateur or professional, you know, that we happen to have that overlap, or if it's just because it is a new science and that's the natural progression is in order to establish the scientific literature you end up needing to enlist citizen naturalists. On the point of just like Victorian naturalists and like how they relate to the modern moment, I think a big part of it actually, despite my cynicism about technology, is technological. You know, a lot of the Victorian revolution was driven by the emergence of things like a microscope. And these clubs were in part, a matter of making those tools available, not to everybody. It was mostly to the gentry, you know, and to landed class and whatnot. But it was part of a broadening of access that led to the progressions of these sciences. Those communities went on to form what became institutions that that we recognize today as like the Royal Society and Q and, and whatnot, which seem like foundational pillars, but they're not that old, uh, all things considered. And today the greatest insights are coming from, maybe not the greatest, but some of the the most important insights are coming from these genetic techniques that we've already mentioned. And those are available to people now. You can buy sequencing devices that fit in your pocket and can do really impressive numbers on, on genetic sequences that you can then go to your laptop and submit to a database that's accessible to the entire world of researchers, professional and non-professional alike. And that just creates the basis, I think, for opportunity. I think we're also in a moment when people are looking for hope and possibility, are recognizing the ignorance that's been displayed toward the natural world by our society. And so I feel like it's a confluence of like the opportunities afforded by new tools and technologies and the imperative to get to know our planet better and all the amazing applications that seem to be posed by fungi that people are discovering all of the there's obviously a lot of economic opportunity in that that's drawing people in but yeah i think it it largely comes down to the tools that are emerging at the same time that this interest is burgeoning because it's a new science and because people are like eager to find out about this massive dimension of the natural world that has been basically ignored for so long yeah it's a perfect storm for amateur naturalists to suddenly get involved and make a huge contribution. And obviously in the book, you mentioned people like Christian Schwarz, like Alan Rockefeller, who are kind of, I think, the penultimate example of that, where they're going out, finding the mushrooms, actually finding these unique specimens, doing the whole phylogenetic process, capturing 
really high quality scientific data. And then on the other part of technology, not only do they have those tools to be able to actually analyze and get the most relevant data out of their samples, but you also dedicate a good portion there to iNaturalist, which is another mm-hmm. half of that technology that like you talked about, the databases and the ability for even people who aren't what's called in the book super users to contribute in a meaningful way to some kind of database that starts helping in this massive task of mapping biodiversity. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of one example is mapping biodiversity. But then the other side of citizen science, and they're inexorably connected, of course, but is kind of these underground labs that you got to be part of. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that, your experience in seeing people working in kind of these community laboratories and what that was like for you, maybe some of the impressions you got from that community. To sort of thread it through with the stuff that Christian and Alan are doing, you know, these super users, you mentioned iNaturalist. And and for those who don't know, you know, it's a, an app that makes it very easy to just sort of take a picture of any living thing that you encounter out in the world, upload it, geotag it, and then the community can come in and help you identify it and add it to a map of biodiversity. And it's a very robust platform, uh, a lot of users and daily posts. And it's as much, I think, a matter of like social media and culture building as it is a database or a um, data gathering process. And someone like Christian, he's involved in the the fungal diversity survey, or he was when I spoke to him, led by Bill Sheehan. Their project is to encourage a culture of citizen science using these tools. Sheehan had put it to me this way. He said they want to encourage the citizen in the citizen science. And so I think their approach is trying to be more bottom-up than top-down. They say so explicitly. And what they mean by that is less like, here's an institution trying to gather a bunch of people to undertake a survey with bookended time frame and funding limits and, and organized by the university or whatever institution it is. Right. And instead to cultivate and, and enable people to just already be doing <laughs> the research and to give them a, an easy way of just funneling it into a scientifically useful form and context. So that moves me to the education piece, which someone like Craig Trester, who I, I visit at what was called the Metropolitan Exchange. I'm not sure it's still open. They had a a lab there called Biotech Without Borders. And they, when I visited, were, I think there were maybe nine people in the room. And Craig mm-hmm. was showing them, was introducing them to fungi. And his his talk was very reminiscent of kind of the Stamets arc, you know, covering the basics of fungal biology and ecology, the applied mycology possibilities. He went very deep. And actually the class went on for like five hours and late <laughs> into the night and nobody left. Like everyone was still uh, very interested. And these were, there were artists, business people, just people from around town that were, that had heard about mushrooms and were curious about it. And they left with little burritos of um, oyster mycelium wrapped up in cardboard. They would take home and grow and they could make potentially start their own mushroom growing operation from that bit of fungal mass if they wanted right they could start a compost pile or they could just throw it away you know either way it was the waste of that cardboard was mitigated a little bit because the fungi were eating it and the curiosity that i saw from those people was was pretty um profound to me because 
um, it was just such a diverse gathering and such a, I mean, of age, of demographics, and the enthusiasm level was super high. And Craig himself, to me, was an example of someone who had like just taken what was essentially pure passion for science and had found a way of turning it into a means of making a living by satisfying this latent demand for education about fungi. And an analogy that's coming to me here, you know, we were talking about from the naturalist side of things that citizen scientists and amateurs are very much augmenting what the academic and classically trained community could do in terms of cataloging biodiversity. And this is another case where citizen science, I don't want to say it's an entirely different discipline, but another part of the citizen science ecosystem, which is the community-based lab, the community-based space that draws people in that are interested at mushrooms from all angles, you know, cultivation, just learning the basics. Again, the citizen science community is augmenting what the academic community can do by translating information, giving people more education, where not everyone can go to university. Not everyone can be in Brent Dentinger's class, but they can get it translated through a citizen scientist who's done the work and the research. So again, we can't get away from the fungi analogies, but it's almost like they're this augmented system kind of helping academia in goals, whether it be research or education. Yeah. There's this allure around them, I think, that creates public interest and maybe fuels non-traditional efforts at stimulating the scientific endeavor. You know, so this citizen science ecosystem that we're talking about, you kind of got to experience one of the keystones in that, which is Peter McCoy, Radical Mycology. In the book, you go to the Radical Mycology Convergence. You get to meet all these different people that are interested in mushrooms, probably some similarities to the folks there you saw in, in Craig's lab in New York. But I guess for you, how inseparable is the interest in mycology as a science with this general cultural shift that goes with promoting the science? Because, you know, a lot of these citizen science groups are, of course, promoting just basic information about mushrooms. But then how much of it is also about like you kept saying, more hope and possibility, you know, how inexorably connected is communicating the science with communicating kind of a different cultural perspective or vision, if you will, that seemed to go along with, with mycology? Yeah, I, I love that question, actually. It's, it's, um, I think it kind of gets to the heart of things for me, or the heart of what I was resonating with as I became familiar with this world of mycology. And, and that's that I feel like a lot of the people drawn to the science are also like drawn in part because they're keenly aware of the the need to do things differently as a society. So like radical mycology, it's in the name, you know, there's obviously an, a, a subversive sort of brand proposition there, but it's also like not just about this community of people and these convergences and these gatherings. Like I've heard people who aren't, aren't really associated with that describe themselves as radical mycologists and it's become a pretty easy kind of catch-all term. Another term that sums it up uh, is from uh, Dr. Joanna Steinhardt, who's a, an ethnographer, and she wrote a really great dissertation on what she classified as DIY mycology, because a lot of this is enabled by like new cultivation techniques and, again, tools and technologies that are making possible a lot of what's happening in the scene right now. But I feel like as far as that juncture goes, to me, it seems like the science 
the interest in learning more about fungi and ecosystems generally, and in trying to elevate the science and advance the science, mm. not just mycology, but again, ecosystemic biocentric perspectives and, and research is tied to this sense that we've been doing things wrong, you know, and that includes at the scientific level, it includes at the cultural level. I feel like the radical mycology, not to speak for that movement or the, or that community, but speaking in the most broad sense of the term, radical mycologists are trying to solve a problem. And part of the problem is our institutions have these legacy perspectives that are narrow, exclusionary, limited by factors like capital and as far as participating, limited by race and gender. And so in a similar way to looking at a mushroom in the forest and thinking, oh, I probably should learn about that tree. If you're thinking about mycology as a science and you start to think like, well, this is about how the world works and it's a science that I want to advance. Oh, I have to think about the institutions of science and how they're limited and why are they limited? Oh, it's not just sciences. It's much broader. It's a whole social thing. So again, the mycological metaphor creeps up and shows that everything is connected. So yeah, to me, the efforts at kind of reinventing the science and elevating the amateur, I believe it was McCoy, but it was at the Radical Mycology Convergence. I heard someone mention that, you know, amateur is rooted in doing something out of love. That's literally the the terminology at work there. And why should that ever be anything to be embarrassed about? I feel like that's sort of the spirit that's carrying a lot of the work forward. People who love nature, love the planet, want to, it sounds reductive and maybe a little saccharine, but, you know, it was the feeling I had when I was there. Like, these are people who are really um, passionate, in love with the planet, distraught over the state of affairs on the planet in a lot of different ways, and see the alternatives, and they're trying to elevate those alternatives. And you just hinted at another part of this mycosphere that I'm always really fascinated by, which is how it changes our cultural perspectives, our human narrative. And I guess that's you know what we're getting to the core of here is that that seems part and parcel with this expansion of citizen science, maybe democratizing of science isn't the best word, but making this mycological science as accessible as possible is it starts calling into question different narratives we have about the BIPOC community, about women's role in science, about, you know, you get to that in the book, some of these bigger cultural questions that somehow mycology or the exploration of fungi are this vehicle for, you know, it's something intangible. It's hard to put into words. Maybe it's just the type of people who are more likely to question those cultural norms are people that are drawn toward these enigmatic organisms, or maybe it somehow inspires that questioning by seeing this new ecological perspective. But I think that's really demonstrated well throughout the book. There's a phrase in there you use that I think maybe encapsulates that better than my, my rambling there. But how, you know, how does this movement, this citizen mycology movement, echo past counterculture movements? Because we're talking about some really similar traits of these movements. That's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's mimicking subcultures of you can make an easy kind of comparison to like punk subcultures in a lot of these spaces and and the way that those communities and also like economies kind of operated they emerged to support their participants and not to get into a whole conversation about punk but like anyone who was like doing it for 
selfish reasons or, you know, for the sake of pure profit or whatever, weren't really, they were seen as orbiting the community, maybe, you know, they weren't punk anymore. And so I feel like there's a, there's certain mechanisms like that at play, attitudes about just what's good and right, that sort of shape how those communities play out. They also like build culture in similar ways. They circulate zines and mixtapes, which to me is amazing. Somehow mushrooms and mixtapes, you can do that. And a lot of this is down to people like Peter McCoy and uh, like William Padilla Brown, who are very deliberate and explicit in their efforts to like build culture and kind of engineer culture in a way or to spark it and to guide it in a certain direction. I feel like there's a certain kind of like counterculture, just kind of swagger to it, even though it's nerdy. And a lot of people would kind of think of it as like hippie, but like, it's not, it's something a little more hard edged than that. And a little more like antagonistic, but I, I don't know if I mean that in quite a, the way that it sounds. I mean, I, I sort of see things on almost like a spectrum as far as like the, the gatherings that I visited, you know, I, I see like, Telluride is a sort of mainstream, even though it's not mainstream, you know, at all. It's wider demographic, maybe. There was a photo series on it in Vogue. It's not forbidding, you know, and it's in this beautiful resort town. And and if you can afford to get there, you know, like anyone can go. But on the other end of that spectrum are, are gatherings like the POC fungi community in what we call San Diego and what is traditionally called uh, Kumeye territory as they are very um, explicit in reminding you when you're there. And similarly, on the other side of the country at the uh, New Moon Mycology Summit, where, you know, land acknowledgements are standard and conversations about white supremacy and their role in this community and and the sciences and land stewardship in general. There's stuff I, I wish I could have put in the book to like really underline just how like at the POC fungi community gathering, for example, that at a time I wasn't in the main auditorium, I could still hear from across the the yard that the whole room was shouting, land back, land back. Mm. You know, like these are people gathering around mushrooms, but it's not about mushrooms only. You know, they're, they're talking about direct action. They're talking about wealth redistribution. They're talking about reparations, things that probably would would make certain people uncomfortable in those spaces. But it's where I, I saw the authenticity of the impulse that I was sensing in these other spaces, like, okay, it really is going there. They actually are taking it to like, okay, mushrooms, cool, great. We've learned a lot about the world by talking about mushrooms. And what have we learned? One of those things, we need to change all these things about how we act and relate. So yeah, it it almost feels like a punk movement to me, even though it's about mushrooms. It's not even just the psychedelic variety, you know, it's about just appreciating them as sovereign beings worthy of dignity that are our relatives and neighbors and that on its own is a pretty subversive like sentiment in the context of our society you're bringing up so many themes that again are sometimes hard to elucidate but it sounds like part of what you discovered is that fungi and mushrooms not only are this vehicle to get people excited in discussing ecological healing but they're this unique vehicle for discussing cultural healing as well for some reason. Yeah, and go figure. I mean, they played a role in cultural medicinal practices around the world for untold centuries, millennia even. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of the the kind of modern interest in mycology is I want to say it's roots, but that doesn't feel right. It's hyphae. 
in uh, you know the psychedelic counterculture and a lot of the cultivation techniques that are being used today and that are fundamental. It was described to me again by McCoy as fourth wave ethnomycology. That's how he sees our current moment. To him, the psychedelic era is like the third wave, and the medicinal practices that that were being rediscovered, quote unquote, discovered, you know, in the mid twentieth century, go back into the span of history that he would call second wave mycology. Mm. And then prior to that, maybe a relationship to fungi akin to like what squirrels have, where it's like intuitive and we just ate the ones that we knew wouldn't kill us at, at some level. I, I can't speak to that era in human history at all, but I don't think any of us can, but there's definitely a conscious evolution there in how we interact with them. All of that to say that fungi have been entwined with human culture for a long time. And whether in a productive and deliberate way or in just the at the level of of being part of our bodies and part of everything around us. It's never surprising to me to find out, you name it, there's a fungal dimension to that. Oh, okay. You know, I don't care what we're talking about. We could be talking about space travel and like, oh yeah, well, they're testing fungi for, you know, solar radiation resistance on satellites now. And like there's always a fungal element and that includes human culture, maybe especially. Yeah, I think it shows up in your book, whether you're talking to cultivators, folks interested in medicinals, folks interested in applied mycology, even academic folks, the same kind of undercurrent of kind of this alternative, dissident, maybe rebellious streak shows up in all these people. So maybe it's just that fungi are this this amazing vehicle to try to communicate some of those alternative viewpoints and integrate them into the culture. And I guess diving into... A couple specifics on why this greater mycophile community sees this mushroom as such a potent tool for cultural change and also ecological change. What were some of the things that inspired you about how mushrooms and fungi are being used to restore the environment? I think we just touched on the cultural piece beautifully. What were some of the ways that inspired you that fungi were being used to tackle environmental problems and get to some of these ecological issues? Hmm. Yeah. Um, Quick detour just to mention that when we talk about the the psilocybe era, I think a lot of the modern mycoculture is operating as a response to what happened in that era in terms of like where these medicines were drawn from, extracted from. And, you know, you can talk about like the hippie movement and the back to the land movement at the same time that were very much connected and how those people ended up, a lot of them, becoming Silicon Valley investors and transformed in a way that I think a lot of people um, lament. And speaking in great broad strokes here, obviously there's tons of nuance to all this, but I do feel like that recognition is is sort of inherent to the, the modern mycological movement. And I think that's tied to the ecological piece in part because attendant to all of that is a recognition of how much we've screwed up our ecosystems, how um, ignorant we've been to the role we play in an ecosystem as members of ecosystems, not the center of any ecosystem. Another thing that fungi exemplify in my mind, you know, they're connected to everything, but they're not at the center of anything. They don't have a center. Again, the context of like ecological collapse provides a great opportunity for anyone who says, hey, maybe mushrooms can fix this. You know, it turns out there's a lot of things mushrooms can do to help us. I'm super wary, and I think it's a, a theme in the book of solutionism, you know, like saying, here's a here's a mushroom, plug it into the problem, you know, and fix it. But 
it's also uh, down to their the lack of knowledge that we have about them because we're just finding out that there is even this capacity and we have no sense of really how far it goes, what kinds of you know enzymes and chemicals we we can discover that fungi produce or what kind of behaviors that we find out they can exhibit that might help us to break down detritus, uh, human detritus, or to kickstart trophic cycles and biodiversity, you know, to regain biodiversity and like compromised landscapes is an example in the book of CUSP, the uh, coalition of the upper South Platte in uh, Colorado right. near Denver. And what they're doing basically is to try to, to take fungi. I'm careful not to use words like use fungi and even take fungi. Like something I picked up from this community, I think is a consciousness of like those terms. Reciprocal relationship. Yeah. yeah. To try to be more yeah, reciprocal about it. You know, working with fungi is a term that you hear a lot around like radical mycology scenes. Like, so that said, they use fungi to, uh, they experience intense and devastating wildfires in that area constantly. And I, I think the, the book, it's going to be in need of updating because the top 10 fires list has changed in that region since since I wrote it just this past year. Yeah, they just had the next biggest fire. So, And those fires are devastating. They bake the ground and they basically sterilize it and leave almost nothing left. And that's tied to logging practices. Again, another connected issue that you suddenly find yourself talking about. You know, I thought we were talking about mushrooms. Now we're talking about logging. But part of the reason for those fires is just the way that trees have been planted after it's been logged. And so as part of a, an effort to, they want to restore the landscape to being alive, you know, to having like organisms in the soil again, to, to reproduce a forest eventually. And they also want to change their logging practices. And so the chips that they're taking from the logging are being inoculated with locally sourced uh, strains of fungus that have been tested for the last five years to see if they can help to break down the wood chips, which would basically just sit there forever otherwise, yeah, into soil, into the makings of soil. And the tests are, are detailed at some length in the book, and, and they're very promising. But it's, to me, a great example of how, like, you know, the fungus can play a role. They can take the wood chips and turn them into the, the makings of future life. But it, it has to be part of a broader effort to rebuild the... And even there, I'm cautious about my language, but to rebuild a forest, you know, but to help the forest regain its footing and, and become a sustainable and biodiverse environment again. And fungi are just one part of that, but they might be a critical part in that example. Yeah, and humans partnering with fungi and judicious application to try to restore ecologies. It's kind of the less sexy as oyster mushrooms sucking up an oil spill, which is kind of an example of People thinking, oh, we can just plug this mushroom in, they suck it up, they fix it, which I think gets us all excited and gets us all interested in it. But I thought your book did a great job of explaining how then when you really get into these bigger environmental restoration projects, they are one piece of the puzzle. And again, you inexorably have to look at the wider ecology, as fungi often force us to do, figure out the natural system and what conditions you're trying to set up to avoid maybe some of the catastrophic conditions that have been, unfortunately, set up by human activity. I thought that was some great insight there about the actual applied mycology aspect, which again, I think is one of the things that gets us most excited when we start thinking about how we can partner with fungi 
things as vast as ecological restoration, you know, our better understanding of fungi helps us with those processes in, in a very important way. So that covers kind of the ecological piece, touched on the cultural piece. Another big part of the book was cultivation and food security and our, our relationship with mushrooms as food. Uh, so what did you learn from the mushroom cultivation community? And what do you think that landscape is going to look like in the coming years? Because you talk about a lot of up-and-comers, you visit a lot of farms, or how do you think mushrooms in our food systems are going to evolve in the next few years based on your contact with that community? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to go in a lot of different directions. Some of them extremely interesting and promising. Some of them maybe just echoes of trends we've seen before. To me, the, the most promising part of what I see in that space is the decentralization of it, the regionalism of it, even though it's something you can do anywhere. You know, that's one of the appeals of mushroom cultivation, I think, that's bringing people into it is like you can live in Nova Scotia, or you can live in Texas, you know, you can be anywhere really, as long as you can control environmental conditions to some extent, to a modest extent, you can grow, productively grow delicious, valuable medicinally valuable, economically valuable mushrooms. So that means a lot of people are trying it. It also just so happens mushrooms are not the most like shelf-stable product. And so there's like a built-in limiting factor that that sort of encourages regional operations. One of the cultivators I visited was um, Smallhold in Brooklyn. And their concept is sort of to develop like a series of sp spoke and wheel kind of networks, like hubs and networks, so that they can basically be a distributed farm. So there are people like trying to kind of innovate a tech angle on it using like bespoke software and these like futuristic climate controlled pods that, you know, they've installed in supermarkets and uh, even like hip restaurants and bars and stuff. That look kind of space age. Yeah, they, they look like something out of Blade Runner, you know, and, you know, and then there's people who are just growing in their in a barn or something that sell at their local farmer's market. I, I visited someone who has a, a company in Colorado, uh, Myco Springs, and they grow mushrooms in their garden and they sell these mushrooms at market. And they also operate a landscaping business where they, as a service, mulch with inoculated wood chips so that mushrooms will grow in these people's gardens and they can eat them. They can sell them. You know, it's a, it's like a virtuous cycle kind of thing that I think people are trying to seize upon as cultivators. I visited an operation that worked out of two converted trailer trucks. I visited an operation that took up a, a massive former horse training facility. The shapes and sizes of possible cultivation operations are just so diverse that I kind of envision it going in a direction where like whatever the community's needs are in terms of like nutrition it's possible to establish a really productive and useful fungal element of, again, what needs to be a bigger picture as far as food security. I'm really wary of the idea of like mushroom farms across the country and nobody's hungry, you know, like we could build all the mushroom farms, but then we'd still be faced with questions of distribution and access and, and all of these other higher order problems that inevitably come up when you're actually trying to solve issues of like food security. So I think the economic opportunities posed by fungi will help to mature the industry very quickly. And I think we're seeing that. I don't know 
uh, how much the last year has changed that trajectory because I think COVID really changed everything. But from what I was seeing in my travels, the enthusiasm that people had, like none of the markets I visited ever had any like leftover mushrooms. Like everyone sold all their stuff. You know, it's always constant stories of just growing enthusiasm. And and all of these cultivators also are necessitated by their businesses, educating people about fungi. So I think kind of attendant to the growth of the medicinal and culinary mushroom kind of market is going to be just a greater myco-literacy. It just seems like the setup for a snowball, but which direction it'll roll, I couldn't say. Again, part and parcel is just spreading this general appreciation and awareness around fungi, no matter what endeavor you're on, whether it's academic, charting biodiversity, trying to leverage economic opportunities, provide food for people. You always need this education piece because it is still catching up. You know, our culture is still catching up with our understanding of fungi and mushrooms. And you just brought up two other big themes that I want to make sure to touch on. And I think I'll start with just a general question about something I find really intriguing, and that's the idea of decentralization and localization. I mean, do you see that as something our world or society at the point it's at now that we could use more of as, you know, have more of a decentralized approach to things, including technology, like you're talking about food? And then do you think that fungi are a good vehicle to teach us about that? Yes, across the board. <laughs> um, I think uh, we could do with a lot fewer centers in our world generally. And fungi, yeah, as we've touched upon, exemplify a centerless existence, you know. I think it was Merlin Sheldrake who put it, you know, they're simultaneously processing information everywhere all at once and, and nowhere in particular. Yeah, I love it. That guy's got such a way with words. As far as like decentralization as just a, a broader principle, it's hard not to participate in the centralized economy. It's the water we swim in. And I think people who are who I've met in these communities tend to get their food from their neighbors. I mean, many of them, at least. A lot of them don't. A lot of them will use Amazon, sure. I don't think there's any one trait I could apply to anyone in this community, but the sensibility that like it's better to get something that was produced nearby by someone whose interest was to satisfy the needs of their community or to do it out of affection for their community, even not out of an interest in profit. I saw really like potent examples of this, for instance, at the POC fungi community where like there wasn't a single thing you could buy there that wasn't made by someone who was there. It was all within that community. As far as I could tell, it may have been something, maybe someone was selling candy bars and I didn't see them, but (laughs) <laughs> you know, Mars bars, <laughs> something they didn't make. But the point of the gathering was the gathering, not the fungi that everyone was talking about. And it offered a context for value exchange on a number of levels, like literally exchanging things of value, bartering or, or buying money that would stay within a community, which is another whole concept. Really like, for instance, Douglas Rushkoff is an author who wrote a book called uh, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus that I, I highly recommend. Talks about the importance of keeping money circulating within a community. Fungi, again, are just part of a piece, I think, but a very potent part and, and a alluring part and may even like drive the shift in some ways or at some levels to consuming and, and exchanging value in ways that are are more about circulating value than extracting it. Uh, obviously, they're not the whole picture. But I I feel like I should note, and we've 
touched on this, I think, a couple of times, that there is something about them that makes for natural progression of thoughts to these conclusions or naturally sets up these kinds of conversations. And you would think that since everything's connected, you could take anything and follow you know, the thread and get to the same, oh, everything is connected kind of conclusion or decentralized perspective or whatever. But for some reason, fungi just have special power to drive those kinds of conversations. And I, I haven't actually worked out why. That's, I guess I'm try, I'm looking to Doug as this brilliant author and mind who's examined these people to get to this ineffable feeling I have of why fungi seem to be such a good vehicle to end up arriving at some of these conclusions or, you know, arriving at some of these mental models that call into question you know, the structures of society, like something as big as decentralization. Will Padilla Brown, who's in your book, obviously that's one of the big themes he talks about is localization, decentralization. He's really inspired me with a lot of that thinking, which he again attributes to fungi. And I think that's such an important concept, you know, that could contribute to community resiliency, which then helps address some of these other questions of inequality and economic inequality and things. And for some reason, fungi seem to be this great vehicle to get that train of thought going and kind of on not necessarily entirely the other side of the spectrum, but when it comes to people seeing economic opportunity who may not be as interested in decentralization, did you find, you know, this new rise of kind of micro entrepreneurs or people maybe from Silicon Valley, maybe from investment circles who see these different potentials of fungi in your examination of kind of the fabric of this subculture, did you see anyone who had concern about the rise of entrepreneurial money entering the scene? Uh, is that something you're concerned about? Is that a factor that plays into this at all? I would say it's certainly a factor. I know for myself, I'm always concerned about you know the entrance of capital into a scene. I mean, it's if it starts flowing onto the landscape, it's going to shape the landscape. And I think people who would like to see you know this all lead to another way of being collectively are naturally going to be averse to the sense that like anyone is just out to profit and i definitely you know sensed certain tensions to that extent at various places i basically tried to avoid that in the book as an explicit thing but it's something humans do where there's opportunity people will seize it and sometimes at the expense of others or a larger purpose. So just speaking for myself, I know I'm sensitive to that sort of thing. Yeah. On the flip side, we're at a moment where the more people are aware of fungi and this broader conversation and these broader concepts, like probably the better. And there's something to be said for just promulgating the message. And for example, someone like Paul Stamets, who is just a titan in this scene and is responsible for my initial interest in it and so many others. Like, There's not a single person in this world of, of mycology that, that doesn't readily just point to him as like major influence and evangelist for this message. You know, There's also a lot of uh, criticism, usually whispered, about just the, the entrepreneurial kind of dimension of what he does and the huge... Yeah, a lot, there's a lot of he's just known as a person who patents a lot of things and there's a lot of ways to parse all of that but i think at the bottom of it is if we're talking about like a decentralized proclivity among these communities then to see any one person who's taking up 
a lot of space in the discourse in the market is going to create some concern. And personally, I think it's probably a productive conversation to have among the community, at least, to decide like how we feel about you go to one company to get all of your cultivation equipment, you know, or you go to one place to like learn about how fungi exist and, and operate in the world and what's possible with them. And over the last few years, there has just been an explosion of books and figures and all manner of new voices in the conversation. And I don't think it's possible to disagree that that has been beneficial. It all just, you know, at every level just points toward the more the merrier and probably the better. Well, and you're getting at something that's kind of at the heart. We're talking about this mycophile culture. Obviously, we're using broad strokes when everyone's an individual. It's wildly diverse. But there is this undercurrent we've been talking about of themes more of a communal mindset, a decentralized mindset, a mindset of what I would call like reluctant capitalism. Like, yeah, that's the system we have, but the organisms that we love so much wouldn't really love this ultra competitive environment necessarily, even though mushrooms do compete. You know, we like the cooperation and we see these narratives they offer us that don't always show up in the capitalist model. And I think someone uh, like Paul Stamets, who is the reason that I'm even interested in mushrooms, the reason this podcast exists, and like you said for yourself, for so many people, yeah. I think at the end of the day, the tally has to be he's done way more good than harm. And, and just thinking of another fungal analogy, he is like a mycelium that's spreading onto this fertile substrate of people that heard about mushrooms and got so excited. And he, he was there to provide things you needed to explore the hobby, medicinals, things like that. And now he's actually done a lot to open up opportunity for other people to now have a role in that ecosystem of providing spawn supplies and grow kits and medicinals and food products, his huge exponential effect in getting people interested in this, which then creates people like us who are getting more people interested, creates just more room for everybody to grow. But I think it's going to be this constant theme for folks in the community to consider. And obviously, you know, the more we're conscious of it, the more we can decide what direction to take. In my mind, I was almost more worried about someone who really isn't coming from a place like Paul is of kind of authentically being obsessed with mushrooms. You could have investors or big money people coming into the space that don't have nearly his level of altruism and love of mushrooms that would be that would threaten the integrity of kind of how we feel about this movement at the whole more. But I think as long as we're cognizant of it, we can make choices around who to support, who not to support, you know, and kind of maintain that integrity in this decentralized way that the community already seems to regulate itself. But yeah, I appreciate you bringing up Paul, because obviously when I talk about micro entrepreneurs, that's the first person I think of. Yeah. Uh, And I think at the end of the day for me, the balances. He's done way more good than potentially harm. And I haven't seen as malignant of an intent as we might worry about with entrepreneurs coming into a space. So um, it's a big conversation to have. And I think at the heart of it is the disconnect we feel by how fungi encourage us to see outside of a competitive capitalist model, but how we have to somehow function within it. Yeah. I think that's well said. I mean, the more you start to see things through that lens, I think the more you you recognize how little the world comports to, or our world comports to those values. And you just become more sensitive to how out of whack things are. And in that context, you know, maybe there's even a, a reflex to 
I don't know, be purist about it or something. And yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree on the Stamets point. And the reason he came to mind first is because of just the influence that, that we're talking about. But there's obviously a lot of, I mean, we're talking a more modern context too. I think like the last 10 years, seen a lot of investment in the medicinal market. And from what I've seen of it, it seems to me is pretty opportunistic and shallow in a lot of cases, at least at like the pharmaceutical level. It's mentioned in the book, you know, my mom was was going through a lot of cancer treatments and at a certain point she was given these mushroom pills that was it they were just mushroom pills like it said they contained basidiomycete fungus on the bottle it didn't specify what kind you know so i feel like there's a lot of potential for just seizing on oh i've heard mushrooms are really highly uh, useful and medicinal and can cure cancer or eat plastic, you know, like it goes in all those directions instantly. People just see the headline or they hear it word of mouth somehow. They catch wind of, of oh, there's something about mushrooms. And honestly, I feel like part of my my intention with the book was to sort of put a note in there <laughs> in that conversation. Yeah. That we should probably pay attention to the values that are being cultivated in these communities, the ways that they're operating, the kinds of conversations they're having. Certainly from the dimensions that are like, traditionally mar- marginalized more broadly to be skeptical of any claims about what mushrooms can do for us you know in quotes like that mentality i think is has gained them a lot of attention fungi but i think it will lead to some disappointment it will lead to some people being taken advantage of or to probably not ultimately useful products flooding the space you know i think in that sense it's kind of a trend but it also happens to involve this fundamental dimension of the natural world that we're just discovering. And so I don't think it's like a flash in the pan trend in that sense. I think it's a trend of like the conversation we're having. And I'm hoping it just opens up down the line to a broadening of interest and awareness of fungi, but keeping in mind the principles of reciprocity and sustainability and interspecies allyship and the agency of the natural world and all of these things that people are trying to elevate within the mycological conversation because it hasn't been completely enclosed by capital yet. It hasn't been co-opted by the market imperative, which is coming for it, frankly, as it comes for everything. It's also a force of nature at this point, it seems. <laughs> like the shadow of fungi or something I just saw in my mind. <laughs> yeah. spreading thing the considerations we're hinting at are all part and parcel with this subculture becoming more mainstream. And you see this in a lot of different subcultures where, you know, you think about the integrity of what the movement is about. And then you think about the benefit that comes, well, if our mission is to really save the world with this appreciation of fungi, then we're going to have to acknowledge that there are going to be all these new voices coming into it, all these new perspectives coming into it. And I think that's why a book like yours and other people doing this kind of narrative capacity gives people that perspective of kind of the heart of what the fungi community, the mycophile community has really been about. And some of the best kind of highest integrity parts of this community are really about that helps make sure that's always included in the conversation, even as it merges into a more mainstream audience. Yes, and we have to be wary of capital coming onto the scene. And one of my questions was, is this kind of a trend or something here to stay? And I think you put that really well. And I think it's a natural thing that a process that we seem to go through with things that humans discover that are good, we over leverage it, we 
maybe lose some of that grounding about the real complexities or nature of it, like you just talked about with medicinals. But then gradually we scale back and come to a more centered view of this thing. And I think, you know, we're probably going to see that same trend when it comes to mushrooms and mycology, you know. Another thing that as it merges into the mainstream, we're seeing the popularity of it on digital platforms explode. Mm -hmm. The popularity of things like mushroom foraging, of working with mushrooms, basically anything mushroom is getting really big on digital platforms. So then you have, again, that conundrum of, of how do we bring more people into it, but maintain these integral principles that are such a big part of this movement for people that have been in it. And I just think that's something that's going to come by having the conversations and people in the community, just keeping that perspective always in place. I think that's something so important. And someone like Juliana Ferci, who's also in the book, talks about just broadening the mainstream perspective to incorporate fungi. And I think part of what she does is also incorporate this indigenous use of fungi into the conversation, into the reciprocity, into the conversation. So I think as folks do that, who are really spreading this message, I think it is going to help it maintain some of its integrity, but it's definitely something I was wondering how you felt about. So I really appreciate you, really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. And I even have a note here, you know, this is a whole kingdom of life. Can one group even lay claim to it? it you know, so it's an interesting conversation to think about. Yeah, you raise exactly kind of the point I wanted to just tack on there, which is that like, I feel hope for the integrity of the movement if it stays decentralized, if the Mm. communities are able to regulate their different zones and their different, that is to say, like, rather than there being like a narrative about what fungi are and what they do, what they represent, I think the first stage is well underway, which is just to make people aware and the next stage is to have waiting for them a neighbor who is involved in foraging or foraying or growing mushrooms and like keeping the enthusiasm and the the energy going and the integrity along with that, which is the work I see these groups doing. And, and I think there are more probably, I mean, there's the mycological society kind of dimension, which is tends to skew older in its membership and has been around for a while. And it's more focused on like forays and and the culinary dimension of mushrooms broadly speaking, my sense is that these new younger groups tend to be more in line with the kind of radical mycology outlook. Right. So my sense is that the rising interest and awareness of fungi just across the board is going to intersect with a burgeoning youth culture, (laughs) frankly, around fungi. I see that going well. I, I personally think that's a good thing. I mean, it's an incredible study in anthropology, really. And that's one of the things about the book. You know, we're having this deep conversation, but your book gets into beautifully examining kind of different characters and their perspectives on some of these issues. And, you know, I I kind of thought of it as like a meta analysis or an anthropological analysis of this community that really is so fascinating because when we're in it, sometimes it's harder to zoom out and see the effect that it's having, how this community is being affected by how it changes and then how it changes the bigger society that it's part of as things progress. We're at a fascinating time in all ways with fungi, both yeah. in, in scientific discovery, in cultural change. It's really exciting and vibrant. And that comes through in your book and all these different examples. And I do now want to talk a little bit about actually writing it. So first question, was this the first book you've ever written? It was, yeah, and is. 
the first book I've ever written. Um, hopefully not the last, because it was such a, a rewarding and enriching experience. This book is so unique in that you're kind of tagging along with people through all these mycological journeys. You know, how did you reach out to all these inspirational characters to interview or get time with them? You know, how receptive were they? What was that process like to coordinate with all these different kind of pillars in this community? Yeah, I mean, it was a mixed bag, honestly. There, something I've learned being a freelance writer for almost a decade is that there's immense power in just asking someone to talk to you. You've probably experienced something similar in the lifespan of this podcast. And people are often just super generous with their time and, and perspective. And I was kind of amazed that like, I found myself buying a ticket to go to Utah to spend time at the museum there. And like, oh, okay, I guess I'm actually going to spend like three days at the University of Utah and, and the Museum of Natural History with Bryn Dentinger. And like, that was just because I sent an email, you know, other people were too busy or in some cases, I never heard back. There's obviously so much that I wish I could have put in the book that I just couldn't, partially just because I couldn't get to the place to see the thing or talk to the person, partially because I can only move my fingers so many times. It's like a shelf life on my knuckles. You know? There's endless amounts of things to say about fungi. Well, and the book was already, I think, 378 pages. So, And a lot of that's references. <laughs> yes, and there are, there are a lot of references, but I think pushing more and more in there was going to make it maybe a little out of reach even for me to go through go through the whole thing. And then, you know, how were you changed by spending time with the people that you did? You know, because you got to interact with people from all the way in the mycelium underground basements in New York City to, like you said, the Museum of Natural History at Utah. How did that experience of writing the book and meeting these people change you? Oh, yeah, I, I would say in many ways. I mean, many of them became my friends. First of all, I, I felt like I was part of a community, even though I often wrestled with the feeling of kind of parachuting in. I wasn't growing mushrooms. That I did as a just to try it. I grew mushrooms at home, you know, but I'm not cultivating them. I don't. Every other word out of someone's mouth was like new information to me in these spaces. And yet I felt really welcomed. And, and you know, I, and maybe this, this connects too, to the conversation about intentions and, and wariness of profit and all that. But like some people were a little iffy about talking to me, but maybe because they weren't sure what I was about. But there are a couple of funny anecdotes about how that played out. But in the end, I felt like I had entered a space where just things were transpiring on the basis of pure curiosity. People were there just because they wanted to talk about mushrooms, learn more about mushrooms, celebrate mushrooms. And that kind of unbridled enthusiasm was really inspiring to me just in a general way. Certainly in writing the book, because I felt that enthusiasm as I was like learning and researching and writing and it never felt forced. It was always an authentic thing. And it was such a diverse and committed group of people who were like, I feel like there may have been a time when someone might feel a little like embarrassed to be like, oh, you know, I'm cultivating mushrooms or I go and I pick mushrooms or, you know, it's sort of socially marginalized thing historically. But not only were they like, was that not even an issue, but they were going the next steps and saying like, and we should change the world, <laughs> you know, and this, and this, this is part of a bigger project that we're all shamelessly undertaking to uh, subvert patriarchy or capitalism or whatever. I, I emerged just feeling like I had left a party, essentially, like the enthusiasm yeah. that was awash in these spaces was, it's still with me, you know, I'm still, still feeling it. You know, I said the podcast is kind of akin to it, 
but you got to spend really physical time and space with people and multiple days and see their operations. So much more involved. So I would imagine that the high, if you will, that I feel from talking to people would only be more amplified. And also to to recognize just how deep the knowledge of so many of these people is. Yeah. It really blew me away, like how much, and not just about fungi, but like also through fungi to just a broader ecological perspective. And the, the examples kind of could go in like people who knew how to train fungi to like tangle themselves into sculptures and, and people who could identify anything that you come across and all of that just left me feeling like, oh my God, there's so much to learn and feeling excited to learn it. It changed the way I feel walking into the woods to spend mm-hmm. time with people who had that kind of relationship to the land. One of the things you said right before the show was you realized how little you knew about fungi. You realized you knew nothing. And I think for so many people, when you get that window into the world of professional mycologists, incredibly experienced citizen scientists and things, you do realize that like, wow, I really feel like I know nothing. Yeah. And that they know everything. (laughs) (laughs) And and then they'll tell the same thing. Yeah, exactly. They'll tell you that they know nothing. Right. Well, and after all this work, after seeing all these different dimensions of mycophilia in your search for mycotopia, what (laughs) are the burning questions or really inspiring threads that you picked up on? Because, you know, we're covering all bases from cultivation to applied mycology, medicinal, psychoactive. But for you, what was maybe one of the two of the threads that were most potent that really kind of inspire you even moving forward? Hmm. That's a good question. I would say the the most enticing kind of dimensions of this whole myco movement to me remain the potential for like medicinal cultivation, medicinal mushrooms and the cultivation community to meet the needs of their communities on their own terms. Yeah. Um, I think I mentioned the the basidiomycete pills earlier. And I, I've, yes. at the time I discovered that my mom was taking those pills, it was right before I went to go to the POC fungi community gathering where I bought a bag of reishi mushrooms that had been cultivated by someone there local strain as far as I'm aware. And even that intention, the intention behind it made a difference to my mind. The fact that the money I was paying for it was going to support a community rather than some pharmaceutical company. I can't speak to the difference it poses medicinally and I wouldn't wouldn't presume to, but I truly believe there's power yeah. in that. And I think the idea of like communities all across the country, especially those who are underserved, under-resourced, neglected, or whose medicinal traditions are actually maybe more in line with the idea that you could forage and grow your own medicine. Right. Including mushroom medicine specifically. I, I just, I see a lot of potential in that, not just like as a market, but as like a, a mode of community sovereignty mm-hmm. and agency. And so that's, I think, dimension to me, like I'm always kind of interested in the subversive dimension of, of something and, and how it might stand to upend inequitable or unsustainable stati quo. Um, yeah, and so for mushrooms, like I'm excited about their potential to remediate landscapes and to provide new materials and you know packing and manufacturing and and textiles and all of that is is super interesting to me, but and, and promising and it may even be necessary for us moving forward. But I think I'm most moved by just how they've shown an ability to bring people into community in, in all these different ways that end up serving the community with more than just like entertainment or a distraction or a trip or whatever, like people might 
associate with like a mushroom festival. Like it's really, to me, it's sort of a mushroom in and of itself. It's a sign of activity that's happening underground and or out of sight. And I think that's where, where I'm the most remain as excited as I was when I first discovered all of this. Yeah. And you know, you're talking about one of the most tangible ways that we can interact with fungi and mushrooms. And it just so happens in that ecosystem you just laid out, it kind of touches on all these different parts, kind of on social justice and healing ecologies and decentralization. So kind of this economic piece, but also food security. I mean, it really touches on all of these elements of mm-hmm. shifting our culture towards something that I think we see as universally kind of preferable. Wow. Yeah. I, I think you've just gotten everyone really excited about that potential as well, maybe more than we already were. hope so. Kind of a general question. You can go anywhere you want with this, but what is this book to you? You know, what is this transmission for you (laughs) and what do you hope people take away from reading it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I honestly wrestled with the the quandary as I wrote it. Like, what is this even about? You know, I I couldn't, (laughs) I could, I was having trouble telling people what the book was about. I'd say it's about mushrooms or fungi or mushroom people, you know, or these community, like I would start to get a little, and I would just end up throwing all these words at it, like I'm doing now, to try to trace this amorphous thing that I was trying to write a book about. And I think I kind of alluded to it before, but to me, like, it comes down to just wanting to contribute a perspective on something that I see as very vibrant and vital and promising. And to kind of offer a sense of what I think is the most promising aspect of it. I hope that the book draws people into contact with fungi who might not have had any interest before or who had heard about this and were curious. Certainly, I hope the people who are already on uh, on this wavelength are, are find the book interesting as well. But I see the interest growing. I see all of this amazing activity happening. And I see the potential for bringing people in in the spirit that I took as the, it's like the spirit we were just talking about, you know, of, of reciprocity and sustainability and decentralization and all of these themes that are in there. But I think people might more easily get taken in by headlines about mushrooms that eat plastic or replacing leather or something. And again, that's all great. But like, as we've covered, you know, to me, what's really powerful about this picture is that it it suggests there's maybe a new way or new new opportunities to come together and to to address our problems well beyond mushrooms and i hope that it turns people you know at the door <laughs> of mycological interest to that room of discourse i think it could follow the same kind of flash in the pan trend if people think like oh they've solved pollution <laughs> you know plastic pollution with mushrooms right. and then find out well it's more complicated than that actually you know and how do you scale that and you know all right well and then suddenly i'm swiping again more of a call to action like yeah that's the potential it's more complicated and here's how you mm. can take part in that and for me that's that's what strikes me so much it's a celebration of this fabric this community fabric that birthed any of these potentials kind of out of it the ideas of remediating environments and creating alternative materials, uh, food and medicine, all of that came from this community of dedicated people, you know, maybe starting with Paul Stamets, influential people like Paul Stamets, Terrence McKenna, further back Gordon Wasson has kind of evolved to now being this fertile ground where these ideas are springing from. That's why I love so much the analysis of the actual community and the fabric and where that's coming from. And, and I think 
whether you're someone who's new to mushrooms, it's great. You know, it's layered not only with analysis of community and society like we're talking about, but also loaded with facts about mushrooms from all these different angles. I mean, I was just impressed with how much information was packed in there amidst stories and amidst bigger analyses of culture and things just loaded with mushroom information. So whether you're someone who's just getting into this, you'll learn a ton and you'll be inspired by community. And then people who are already part of this community and feel like they're really entrenched in mycology, there's plenty there for you as well. And I think it does offer something something to everyone. And we talked about mushrooms connect everything. So <laughs> writing a book about fungi and the people that love it is inevitably going to encompass everything. So exactly. Yeah. I mean, you start with a mushroom, you end up with the world or something like that. <laughs> I, I did want to add, and I appreciate you saying that, that you feel like it may serve that function. And that's something else that I hoped to accomplish with the book was to give people a sense that this is something you can participate in and contribute to and make meaningful contributions to. And I feel like the book is in and of itself kind of hopefully proof of that. As someone who came into this world from the outside and, and spent you know some years soaking it up, obviously it was driven by my own passion for fungi, but I didn't feel like I'm no mycologist, I'm no scientist. Like who am I to even talk about this? <laughs> who needs to hear from me right now anyway? You know, the, all those questions were kind of swirling in my head. And yet it's such a new field of inquiry for so many people, and there's so much yet to be discovered and so many norms to be set and Everything is still so nascent. The potential is so vast that I feel like it's it's just a golden invitation to anybody who's got any interest in ecosystems and the natural world, medicine, and all of the those many infinite things that fungi connect to. And so it's just such a rich and exciting point of entry for anyone who's got even a little bit of curiosity. And I really hope the book uh, entices someone to journey even further. Yeah, I think that perspective of an authentic journey into this world lets us as readers kind of find ourselves in your story, which is always really satisfying somehow and does encourage us to do more. So I guess then the question that I hate asking anyone who's written a book, what, what's next? What book is next? Uh, <laughs> but what, what's next on the horizon for you or what, what projects are you looking at uh, here as we enter 2021? Oh, that's a... I'm fermenting a lot of kraut these days <laughs> and learning to identify trees. I moved to the woods uh, north of where I used to live in Brooklyn. So these are some other examples of how my encounters with the fungal dimension and, and this community have changed me. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm focused for the time being on, yeah, absorbing a lot of the lessons that I've tried to articulate in the book, finding ways of bringing my own life into better accord with some of the values that I've I've taken on as a result of this experience. And obviously there are trend lines in my life prior to all of this that that feed into the to all of that. But just given everything that's happening in the world these days and obviously I'm I'm just starting out on my first ever journey into talking to people about my first ever book. So preparing for that, I think it necessitates a lot of downtime on the other yeah. side and a lot of reflection. And I'm I'm trying to give myself the space to do that right now. Hopefully another book down the line. We'll see. It is kind of like you are fermenting. I mean, you have mm -hmm. taken in all these inputs and you're kind of in the middle of this big growth period. And that's so funny. I just thought of this meme 
that's been going around about how do you tell someone something without telling them? So how do you tell people that you're now obsessed with fungi without telling them, mm-hmm. well, I'm fermenting and learning trees and I moved to the woods. Yeah. <laughs> I think you, uh, you've been, uh, you've been reading mycelium running, have you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, I think you just told us all we needed to know about how it's influenced you, yeah. but where can people find the book? Where can people find out more about your work? Well, the book, I believe, is available anywhere that fine uh, books are sold. Obviously on Amazon, uh, although I and many others are, are prefer other options. And so you can go to bookshop.org. Barnes & Noble has it. You can also buy it straight from the publisher, which is uh, Chelsea Green. Great publisher. A ton of books kind of in this vein for anyone interested in permaculture mushroom. I mean, Chelsea Green yeah. is fantastic. Trad Cotter's great mushroom book is uh, under their aegis. And... Yeah, they're the perfect uh, partners in putting this book together. So yeah, all of those are options, and I'm sure there are more <laughs> that I don't even know about. Anywhere you get your books, you're going to be able to find In Search of Mycotopia. And obviously, through this whole conversation, we've just scratched the surface. I mean, you just mentioned Trad Cotter. There are all mm-hmm. kinds of influential mycological characters included that we can all learn from. And you even talk to people who are pursuing PhDs. So people we might not know about yet that are doing inspiring work and offer their insights. So can't recommend it enough to people, especially if you listen to this podcast, this is a natural continuation and extension onto that, that you're going to love this book. (laughs) Before we wrap up, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I like to ask all my guests, what is a mushroom or a fungi that you love and Mm -hmm. why? And doesn't have to be a favorite. Could just be the mushroom of the moment. Yeah. But a mushroom you love and why? Yeah. I mean, I want to give you a really like slick and sophisticated Exotic, answer. Exotic. No yeah. one's heard of. Yeah. Show off. But I'm the last person who's capable of that. And honestly, the one that comes to mind is just Rishi. I have some special, I've, I've told you a little bit about some of the associations I have with it. It's just such an enigmatic mushroom to me. It's It's got a, I mean, I think this applies to kind of the whole Ganoderma genus, like I love the lacquered texture of them and they're, they they just seem like works of ceramic almost. And they're obviously highly medicinal and, and they just, in my mind, they just resonate as like the mushroom that tells you that mushrooms are worth your attention. And they also were one of the first ones I encountered at Smugtown Mushrooms, the, the first cultivator I visited. Olga was cultivating them and so there are all these people in like denim and like kind of punk buttons, spikes and stuff. And they were like holding reishi mushrooms like up to them and taking pictures. And so it became a kind of like symbol to me. It's also features heavily in uh, like the radical mycology kind of iconography. And yeah, so, yeah, just in my mind is, is sort of the mushroom that reminds me of all of this. Beautiful to look at, incredibly medicinal. Yeah. Can't go wrong with Rishi, so that's a terrific answer. It's also the first one I ever grew, and now that I think about it. I took a bag of it back, and it sat on our kitchen counter for months, and it was such a mind-blowing experience to watch it grow over the course of weeks and ultimately to put it in our tea. And I have a profound uh, feeling for that mushroom. Profound relationship with Rishi, kind of a broader term that we've probably touched on many times, but what has this relationship you've developed with fungi given to you? You know, how's it deepened kind of different aspects of your life, offer you new perspectives? How's that relationship shaped you? It's kind of hard to believe that it, that I wasn't already, you know, on this journey, you know, before, before I began it, because it feels so essential to my personality now and my, I mean, more, more to the point to my worldview, 
And obviously, and I'm sure you've uh, experienced this and anyone listening has probably experienced, but as soon as you get into mushrooms, you become the mushroom person, you know, the mushroom guy or the mushroom lady totally. or whatever in your, your groups. So that that's a role I've had to sort of get used to. Luckily, I always know I can point who I can point them to for more information than I can provide because uh, very limited in, in what I can actually offer. But I mean, honestly, like transformed my life in innumerable ways just to become aware of fungi as a part of the world around me and part of my life and all life. Obviously, as a professional matter, it's now something I've written a book about, but I wouldn't have ever guessed that that was something I would do. And and it all happened in such a, a easy and organic way that it I'm not one to like entertain these sorts of things usually, but it, it felt like I was doing something that was that I was supposed to be doing. Like it was just natural. Like, oh yeah, you're you're going to meet this person now and you're going to be introduced to this scene and you're going to have an opportunity to write about mushrooms at the same time. And then actually a publisher is going to notice that and they're going to see the same thing you see and invite you to say more about it. And, um, Maybe the mushrooms chose you and set all these synchronistic events into motion. Yeah. And I'm more open to that sentiment than I've ever been. And I credit the mushrooms for that as well. You know, I think it's, uh, I don't think there's any uh, limit to the encouragement I could give people to, to dig deeper into fungi. It's really um, enriching. Being a servant to the mycelium <laughs> be an incredibly enriching experience. And I find a lot of myself in what you're saying about pointing people in the right direction. That's very much why I started the podcast is when people, when you become that mushroom person and people start asking you questions, okay, now let me point you in the direction of someone who knows <laughs> much more than I do. And I think that's so useful is to be those way showers for people to show them what's inspired you and people that have inspired you. And that's really how we help spread this message in a much more powerful way, I think. Than, yeah. Um, I find great joy knowing that those people are going to if they're asking me to tell them about a mushroom or to point them in a direction, I know that they're going to go and do their own digging and they'll probably come back knowing more than I do about that thing. And yes, it feels like the way this community kind of works, you know, it relies on interactions like that. It doesn't rely on, it's kind of decentralized, I guess. Yeah. It gets right back to that theme of decentralization. Uh, finally, another big question that you can take any direction you want, but what is your, your greatest hope for our collective future with fungi, maybe pathways that'll open up, ways it'll change us. Again, something we've probably touched on a couple of times, but greatest hope for our collective future with fungi being part of the picture. Hmm. I think the, the the greatest hope I can think of, the greatest aspiration I can imagine for fungi, as far as humans are concerned, is to change our perspective and to make us more aware of the co-constituted nature of nature and our mm. place in it. And maybe to even lead us to behave in ways that are more reflective of that reality. The more I see mushrooms and fungi becoming kind of popular and subjects of discussion, the more hopeful I get that people are going to come to the same realizations that I've come to and that other people have come to, so many other people than myself uh, have come to about our interdependency and that Nothing exists outside of its context. We need yeah. one another. And by one another, I don't just mean people, you know, I mean everything. Our life is part of life and like a capital L kind of sense. And mushrooms are just such amazing messengers for that, that concept. 
and they I think they teach it to people in ways they might not even notice at the moment that it's being kind of conveyed. So yeah, I'm you know it's part of that kind of subversive dimension of it. I think I kind of I hope that the more people get into mushrooms will will also be the more people who kind of question things and and start to see things in a new light that brings us back to a connected perspective. A massive broadening of awareness and perspective, maybe shattering some of our blinders where we tend to focus on human. As you were talking, I was thinking maybe the best gift they can give humans is to not see everything through the lens of just humans. Right. Uh, so, Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, you shared a lot of deep insights that aren't in the book. Again, I encourage everyone to go out and get the book because it's just packed full of information we couldn't cover here. But I just loved meeting man behind a book I enjoyed so much. So thank you for spending time with us and coming on the Mushroom Hour. Oh, my pleasure. And likewise, so happy to be on this show that I love listening to so much. So thank you for your time. 